In this episode, I am joined by John Bram, American poet and author of the Dharma of Poetry. John recalls his early life in Nebraska, formation as an unlikely poet, use of psychedelics, and discovery of the ascetic impulse. John reads Non-Harming, a poem from his latest book, Dharma Talk, and reflects on the use of poetry for personal and religious edification, as well as the power of exposing one's darker dimensions in verse. John also discusses how to achieve profundity in poetry, the skillful use of language, why T.S. Eliot is so often criticized, and how to detect the unmistakable whiff of ego. So without further ado, John Brem. John Brem, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Steve. Very happy to be here. Well, I'm so delighted to be talking with you today. And we're going to talk about your life. And we're going to talk about, in particular, probably we'll end up focusing on the Dharma of Poetry. The tagline is, how poems can deepen your spiritual practice and open you to joy. Uh, yeah, wonderful book published in 2021 by Wisdom Publications. Of course, in preparing for this discussion, not only did I reread Dharma of Poetry, which I've enjoyed previously, but also looked at your wider work. And I have to say, there's a new contender for my favorite of your poems. Wow. Yeah. And it's at the poetry reading. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> I did warn you that was going to be a curveball. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm glad that you like that poem. It's so interesting that you mentioned it because not long ago, well, let's see, about a year and a half ago, maybe, um, a, a person uh, alerted me to the uh, fact that a, a Facebook group was going to be talking about that poem, a, po a poetry group on Facebook, uh, without knowing that they uh, proceeded to or that they were going to uh, just just savage the poem. I mean, they were very um, reactive and very upset about the the sexual nature of the poem, and and it it, it got quite ugly. Um, and so uh, I have <laughs> that used to be on my website. It is no longer, <laughs> um, but that's it's a it's a reflection of the environment we live in now where uh, people are extremely sensitive to um, any kind of sexual content that might be perceived as sort of outside one's expectations of what one might find in a poem. Um, but yeah, I, I, I might rather not read that poem. You have a backup? I have, yes, I have endless questions and backups, so that's fine. Yeah, of course, it's a poem that taps into a very particular vein of erotic, um, yeah. casual erotic, erotic objectification and and yeah. uh, and fantasy and self-aware sinfulness in a sense. But right. I, I, that's why I like it. I think it it hits that note so perfectly, and it's yeah. that's why I like it so much. It's you know I'm not saying it's necessarily a manifesto for how one ought to live one's life in the 2023. 20, right, exactly. And I wrote it in 1990, I think. Um, it, it, so it's certainly not the kind of poem I would write now. Um, although that kind of um, self-awareness of one's foibles, one's um, less than noble impulses uh, is something that I feel poetry should include. 
And so in all of my work, I'm, there's a willingness to kind of look at those aspects of my behavior, the way my mind works that, that aren't so flattering, you know, <laughs> that are rather, you know, embarrassing until, until you acknowledge them in a kind of lighthearted way. And then it can be kind of, it can be really fun to work with in poems, but most poets try to present themselves as, um, well, I shouldn't say most poets, but many poets try to present themselves as, you know, having only the appropriate emotions um, and uh, the, you know, kind of exalted poetic feelings that one might expect to find. And and so I've I've kind of pushed back against that in, in my work. And I, I like to include poems that show a less a less flattering, less noble, uh, less exemplary uh, side of my of myself. Yeah. Well, you say less exemplary, but then I also think of Ikkyu, you know, the poems mm. of Ikkyu, yeah. yeah. edgy, and... I mean, Ikkyu yeah. is, I mean, he's sort of the exception that proves the rule, right? I mean, there aren't a lot of poets who write out of the same kinds of experiences and in the same way that than he does, but but I agree, it's, uh, it, I mean, I find it refreshing. There is something divine about taking that note and producing yeah. something so beautiful, wry, accurate, and resonant from it. There's something, yeah. there's something uh, sacralizing about that, isn't there? I, I think that, I mean, I hadn't considered that before, but now that you say it, I think that's a really excellent observation. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it, you know, what, what is it about that that takes us into the realm of the sacred? Because it, it, you know, it doesn't seem like that would take us there. It seems the opposite of that. And yet, I think you're right. Um, and maybe it's just the willingness to acknowledge the full range of human feeling, human impulse, um, and to accept that, to embrace that, to not say, poetry can contain these kinds of experiences, but not these kind. And, and, uh, one should feel these feelings, but not these feelings. And so the the willingness to include and embrace the full range of human response to life, I think maybe that is the quality that takes us into the sacred. But I'd love to hear more of what you think about that. That appreciation of one's experience, that appreciation of the wife of the of the poet at the poetry reading in that case. And also the the self-awareness of that, that self-aware line, my God, why doesn't he write poems about her? He will, no doubt, once she leaves him. Leaves him for another poet, perhaps. <laughs> the observant, an innocent one who knows a poem when it sits down in a room with him. I mean, what a... <laughs> yeah, it was a fun poem to write, I have to say. And I mean, I was partly reacting against the, the, the kind of over-seriousness, pretentiousness of poetry readings, the kind of you know, church-like solemnity that is, uh, often attends on the poetry reading and and just sort of, you know, poking holes in that and, and giving voice to this fantasy, um, very inappropriate fantasy um, under the circumstances. And I often wonder if that, that poem got a, a, anthologized quite a bit. And I often wonder if the poet in question ever saw it, <laughs> and what he, if he would have recognized him, himself there. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a fun poem to write, but but the the reaction to it these days is, I, I suspect, you know, I mean, this one Facebook group is very intense, and that might be now the the norm. Um, but I'm I'm glad that you like it. You know, I have another poem that is um, 
is sort of similar in terms of the the, the kind of self-awareness. And I uh, would you be up for me reading a poem at this I'd be point? Up, I'd be up for you reading any poems at any point. Okay, wonderful. All right, this is from um, my new book, Dharma Talk, which Wisdom published um, in September, this September. And um, it's called Non-Harming. I wonder what the neighbors think when they see me outside with a BB gun shooting at the pigeons on our roof. I gave them a copy of my anthology, The Poetry of Impermanence, Mindfulness, and Joy, and the introduction makes me sound like a person who probably wouldn't be shooting at pigeons, even if only with a BB gun, which doesn't really hurt them, I tell myself, but simply encourages, encourages them to find someplace else to deposit their smeary droppings that threaten to turn one side of our house into a bad Jackson Pollock painting. Honey, come look at this. Isn't that the mindfulness guy out there with a rifle shooting at his own house? I'm well aware of the irony, but life's like that, isn't it? A contradiction wrapped in an absurdity, etc. Still, plunking pigeons with a BB gun might not fall afoul of the injunction to not cause harm. I thought about shooting myself in the foot just to see how much it hurt, but decided against it. I tried placing scary looking plastic owls strategically around the roof, but the pigeons laughed at that. I tried an electronic device that sent out a kind of sub audible to humans shrieking, imitative of a bird of prey, but they didn't fall for that either. I always thought pigeons were dumb, but now I'm not so sure. They've outsmarted me so far, not that that's any great accomplishment, moving from one side of the roof to the other, where the angle for firing is not so good, and where the homeowner is exposed, even in this early morning half-light, to the watchful eyes of the neighbors. <laughs> yeah, that's brilliant. Thank you. Yeah. So it's not the kind of experience that one... Uh, would typically choose to, to write about, you know, you, you, you would, you know, you might feel some embarrassment, like here I am, this, you know, Buddhist, uh, but I'm out there shooting at the pigeons uh, on the roof. But, you know, going into that experience and having some fun with it, you know, approaching it with some lightness, um, felt like a very, uh, you know, rich thing to, to do. Yeah. In the spirit of what you write in your book about, um, you encourage people to say what they enjoy about a poem. We'll get to that. How to how to enter a poem. Um, you know what I enjoy about something I enjoy about what you read there isn't isn't the uh, embarrassment of being a Buddhist sort of renowned Buddhist shooting at the uh, pigeons. It's the embarrassment of being a renowned Buddhist shooting at pigeons, worrying about what his neighbor thinks about that. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yes. That's the best part. That's the best part. Yeah. Yeah. And imagining what they might be saying, you know, honey, come look at this. Isn't that the mindless guy out there shooting at his own house? Um, and, you know, there's worrying about the what. So the neighbors is, is the audience to the experience. But the poem, uh, you know, invites the reader into to to witness this behavior. And so there's another kind of uh, witnessing uh, that the poet volunteers for uh, to be seen by the reader doing this thing that is uh, or might be rather embarrassing. Yeah. Well, thank you for that reading. Mm -hmm. I wonder if we might pivot 
a little to your biography. Um, oh, sure. And, and then from there, uh, address some of the themes in the Dharma of Poetry. Yeah. So you were born and raised in Lincoln, Nebraska. Yeah. And educated at University of Nebraska and also, also Cornell. Yeah. I wonder if you might say a little something about your upbringing, the context of your upbringing. Yeah, sure. Um, so I was born in 1955 and uh, in into a working class family. My father um, didn't finish high school. Um, no one in my family was very academically inclined. I mean, smart people, but my parents both grew up during the Depression and my father quit high school to to find work to help support the family because they were quite poor. Um, my mother grew up on a farm and, um, she could have done well in college, I'm sure, but it just, it just wasn't something that they aspired to particularly. Um, so I mentioned that because it, it's still somewhat unusual to, uh, find a life in poetry coming from that kind of background. Um, I mean, there were no books of poems in the house there. I mean, my mother kind of read Book of the Month Club novels and that sort of thing. But it's it's still a bit of a mystery why it became my path um, to find poetry and then meditation. Um, but I think it was actually good for me. Um, I don't think I would have done as well if I had been born into a family where one was encouraged to explore uh, artist one's artistic impulses that my parents didn't discourage it but I was sort of left to find my own way and that that I think proved to be a good thing for me um so yeah I had a pretty you know conventional uh childhood uh grew up in a in a a neighborhood working class neighborhood but um you know lots of kids uh, everywhere and uh, I was lucky to go to you know good schools um, and was in the sixth grade placed into a ninth grade reading class. They found that I was reading at this really high level. And that was that was really important for me. And I mean, it was a huge step uh, in sort of seeing like, oh, I like this. I like being in this world. Um, and uh, yeah, then college, uh, University of Nebraska turned out to be also a good place for me. It had a really strong English department. And um, I loved it there and uh, worked with some poets who were really helpful. Um, I remember when uh, I was a freshman, I took a, a poetry writing class and the the poet, the teacher had us uh, turn in some poems and then the next class, he had mimeographed them. That's how long ago this was. And I came into the room and mine was on top of the stack and he praised my poem. Um, uh, really strongly. And I remember after the class, I, I went into his office and said, you know, this is what I want to be. I want, I'm going to be a poet. I'm not just taking this class because there are no tests or, you know, uh, papers to write, which many people did. Um, so I knew pretty early that that's, that's what I wanted to be. I had a very strong sense that this was really important to my life and that that's the path I would follow. Um, and then, you know, I was really fortunate to go to Cornell, um, and to study with A.R. Ammons, uh, who was a brilliant poet, um, won the National Book Award twice. And I had fallen in love with his work as a senior in college. And um, yeah, I was thrilled to, to get accepted to Cornell and, and, um, and to work with him. 
some other poets there. And just to just to be there was quite wonderful. Um, there was a great Wordsworth scholar there, uh, M.H. Abrams, and I got to work with him as well. And so that was a really rich and important experience and a beautiful environment for me to be in. Um, and his work, Archie Ammons' work, has been a profound influence on me. Um, and so, yeah, that continues. I, you know, he he passed away in 2001, but um, I continue to have a relationship with him through his work that's quite important and influential. Very interesting. I wonder if you might say something about your formation as a poet in those days. Which poets inspired you at that time? Sure, sure. Well, I mean, one of the, the sort of um, experiences that, that kind of prepared the way was my experience of psychedelics. Um, so this was, you know, in the, in the late 60s or early 70s, and um, I became really fascinated by, by psychedelics and did quite a lot of LSD and mescaline and other things. And the effect that that had on me, I mean, it was a revelation. Um, and I, I had this sense that like, oh, right, that there's another world. I mean, there's another way of being in the world, but there is another world that is typically invisible to us, but that these sacred plants and sacred medicines can give us access to. And so that, that really was the spark that made me feel like, oh, I need to find a way to to maintain contact with that world. I'm calling it another world. I mean, that's totally inadequate language, but there is no adequate language. But um, I need to, I mean, you can't do LSD every day for the rest of your life. I mean, you know, so I, I, I knew that I wanted to find some way of maintaining contact with this sacred dimension of, of life, we might say, um, this invisible realm or the, or the realm of my own true nature. Um, and so poetry became that for me. And uh, I think I was led there in part by those early experiences with, with psychedelics. And um, the poets who were most important to me initially, William Carlos Williams was, was really important. Um, and there was a Nebraska poet named Ted Kuzer, uh, whose work was quite important to me. Um, and what I loved about Williams was the work was so immediate. I mean, it has a very Zen-like quality of immediacy, vividness, direct experience. Um, it was relatively easy to enter his poems. Um, they didn't present the same kinds of challenges that, say, Eliot or Pound or other high modernist work would present. And it got me to look at the world. You know, I had convinced myself that Nebraska was a completely uninteresting place to live, that there was nothing to see here. You know? And when I started reading poetry, it that too was a revelation. It was like, oh, okay, wait a second. Like these cornfields and, um, you know, grain silos and sort of, you know, ordinary neighborhoods and things uh, turned out to be quite fascinating once I began to actually look. And that was, I think, the main gift of Williams's work for me was to get me to actually look at the world, to stop and pay attention in a particular kind of way. Um, and that just opened uh, me to the my environment in a different way, but also to poetry. I mean, to it made me want to engage more deeply with 
with with poetry and to um, continue this way of engaging with a world that is based on you know really looking and seeing and paying attention. You mentioned that poetry has helped you helped you at that time see Nebraska, for example, in a particular kind of way. I'm curious what that particular kind of way is this experience of seeing one's local area yeah. as something magical, special, beautiful, something. Um, there are many roots to that. One of them, I think, is history. Some people yeah. become fascinated by a place. They, they realize they're standing on ground steeped in history, for example. Right. People can come to that awareness and begin to wake up to their surroundings. Right. Um, I've had something of that experience myself here in the Midlands. I live in the Midlands in the UK, and it's sort of, I, you know, really pass it over in my imagination. And then living here and soaking it up and being here and watching the seasons go yeah. on and on and on. And then gradually the history starts to reveal itself also. Yeah. Um, and the character of the place begins to emerge. And yeah. I find I fall in love with it. And there's few places I'd rather be. And mm. that surprised me. You know, that surprised me. Um, what is this particular kind of way of seeing that revealed Nebraska to you at that time? Yeah, for me, it, it wasn't the historic, historical dimension of the place. It was more just letting, well, it was looking instead of judging. So I had just dismissed Nebraska as this boring place. And um, and I I I thought that I needed something big and dramatic. So Colorado is the neighboring state to the West. And I had been there. We had driven through Colorado a number of times when I was a young person to visit family in California. Um, and that to me was this very alluring landscape. I mean, the Rocky Mountains are just so extraordinary and so impressive and kind of overwhelming in their, their beauty and their power. And I was sort of longing for that and felt like Nebraska was the absence of of anything really worthy of attention because it wasn't dramatic. It wasn't big. There, there weren't aspects of that landscape that you could point to and say that that's obviously beautiful and awe-inspiring. So it was kind of the, the ordinariness and subtlety of the landscape that I then became drawn to. So um, this landscape of cornfields and gravel roads and sort of nameless creeks and um, the occasional kind of shelter belt of trees, um, but a, a landscape that is really not uh, immediately impressive. Um, so there was there was that, and the same was true in my experience of of Lincoln. Uh, when I first started writing poems, I was living in a neighborhood that was again a kind of working class neighborhood. But one of the things that I love to do, and still love to do, is to walk the alleys in neighborhoods and to and to really pay attention to the things that kind of existed in this bardo zone between usefulness and trash things that people weren't quite ready to throw away, but they were no longer, you know, kind of a functioning part of the household. But there was something about that that I found really compelling. Um, and again, it wasn't it wasn't that things were uh, ostensibly or obviously beautiful. They weren't. But looked at in a certain kind of way, they kind of came to, to life. And it was 
there's sort of non-beauty that drew me to them, uh, that they were discarded things, things that were neglected or broken. Um, and, and you know, at the time, I wasn't aware of wabi-sabi, that aesthetic that values things that are marked by impermanence and melancholy. And um, But I think that's partly kind of what I was feeling. Uh, I was drawn to things that were, you know, rusted or 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 broken or somehow, you know, disheveled or discarded. Um, so it it was those that way of looking at things that that felt really compelling to me at the time. Yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, but yeah, very very revealing. You talk about that now in terms of wasabi and impermanence and icha. How would you have, what, what would you have said then that it was that drew you to the, the broken, the discarded, the marked? Yeah. yeah. You know, I don't think I would have had a way of conceptualizing it back then. I just had examples of poets who did that. And Williams was one of them. And this other poet, uh, Ted Kuzer, uh, was another. And so, yeah, I didn't, I didn't think a lot about, you know, aesthetics, you know, and what, what uh kind of aesthetic framework i was working with i just i just felt that impulse something uh drew me to to look at those kinds of things in that kind of way and i think it was really just having the examples of other poets who had done that and it was kind of what was available to me i mean the mountains were not available to me there was nothing dramatic in the landscape that was really available to me but what was available um, I, if I saw it differently, it kind of came came to life and and became worthy of attention and worthy of writing about. Yeah. How deeply do you think a poet needs to understand or be able to conceptualize something like what you've been discussing these last minutes in order to express it poetically? Mm. I, you know, in your in your book, The Dharma of Poetry, one you make this very interesting point that um, there are certain modes of engaging with a poem that are valid, but they're not the only one. And one of them is the find the meaning uh, yeah. mode. And what's the poet saying? Treating poems almost as as a sort of machine of meaning, that one a puzzle of meaning that one has to has to yeah. work out. Um, but you say that's not the only way to engage with a poem, and it can actually be quite limiting. So I wonder then. To what degree does a poet need to be able to conceptualize these deep and meaningful uh, right. things in order to, in order to write moving poetry in that way? Right, and to, and to be able to say what they're doing, to explain what they're what they're doing and why they're doing it the way they're doing. Yeah, yeah, I'm not certain of, about that. How important that is. Um, I mean, I think you know, one has to be you know conscious of what one's doing, but not not so much so that it kind of gets in the way of one's impulses as a writer. Um, but yeah, that the idea that poems are primarily these kind of verbal mechanisms for delivering meaning is a really reductive kind of left brain way of engaging with poetry. And I've been really strongly influenced in the past few years by the work of uh, Ian McGilchrist. And I wonder if you know his work, yeah. Incredible. I do. Brilliant. Um, you know, and I have an essay uh, 
that is going to be included in this new anthology that will come out next year from from Wisdom, um, an essay on appreciative attention. And one of the things I talk about there is um, an experience I had in graduate school where professors and PhD students would often speak of interrogating a poem. I like seemingly unaware of the associations of uh, associations between interrogation and um, torture, um, unaware of or unbothered by those associations. Um, but that word, the aggressiveness of that, um, of that way of approaching poetry seems to me just absolutely um, wrong. Uh, you know, not, not that there's a right and wrong way exactly, but that that kind of aggressive stance towards a poem um, to sort of, you know, wrestle the meaning out of it uh, by violence, if necessary, um, is, is, a, is, a, is an affront to poetry. And it comes out of the grasping mind, um, which is always, you know, coming into our ways of understanding the world. The appreciative way, um, which is what I I suggest in in the Dharma poetry and in this essay on appreciative attention, is a much more gentle and um, open hearted and um, a softer way of engaging with poems and and just going towards what we feel drawn to what resonates for us, what we like, what feels like lit up, um, what gives us pleasure in poem. Um, to go first towards that and then and then see where that takes you. Um, but to let the that aspect of the mind that is always wanting to understand and to fix meaning, um, let that be in the background and have played kind of a supportive role. Um, but to have one's initial uh, entry into the poem be through the doorways of noticing and appreciating and letting the poem open um, and, and sort of going into it. When we're analyzing a poem, we're kind of holding at a distance. So there's a quality of separation. And if you can let go of that and actually enter the poem, it's, it's almost like a non-dual practice. It ceases to be you out here looking at the poem over there, it's more you're inside the experience as it's unfolding. And the poet's consciousness, which is still, in my view, still alive in the poem, um, becomes something that we can merge with our own consciousness. And it can be this kind of alchemical uh, reaction that that is really rich and can take us places that we didn't know we would get to or couldn't get to if we didn't start with the quality of appreciation if we went right into what elizabeth bishop called the immodest demand for complete comprehension um i love that uh that way of framing it the immodest demand for complete comprehension we need we want to understand everything right away um and the mind gets very frustrated when that's not happening but the appreciative attention that way of entering goes, it just sort of sidesteps that whole aspect of the mind. And something else that you write about this, uh, this entering through the doorway of appreciation and noticing, you also sometimes use that word noticing, particularly in a group context, group discussion context, 
uh, is that you say that it also relieves people of the need to try to come up with something clever to say. Yeah. You mentioned Eliot before. I've heard it said that Eliot and the other, those other high modernists were a part of that actual lifting poetry a little bit out of the reach, as wonderful as Eliot is, and he is wonderful, lifting poetry yeah. out of the reach, putting it into, because of all the illusions and um, so on, references in Eliot and so on, you know, taking it into the realm, rather, of the specialist, into the realm of the, the person equipped with the right apparatus, the right critical lens to be able to engage right. with poetry. Otherwise, you know, it's highbrow. Po poetry's highbrow. It's what intellectuals do. It's what academics do. It's for the yeah. ivory tower. It's not for, not for us. Yeah. Exactly. What do you think of that narrative that, say, the high modernists or so lifted the poetry into the realm of the specialists? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's certainly what Williams, uh, how, he, how he saw it. And he hated Eliot. I mean, he hated him. He hated his work and he hated him. <laughs> um, um, and and he he said you know Elliot and Pound took us back into the schoolroom, you know he said we had just succeeded in creating a kind of American idiom, um, and Elliot and Pound dragged us back to Europe, and the European tradition, um, and the academic tradition, and um, you know I yeah I every now and then I'll try to reread Elliot and you know I recognize his brilliance particularly I think in the later poems, uh, and the early early poems the proof rock poems. Um, but the wasteland, I, it just feels like I, I, I have no, I can't connect with that poem at all. It just feels, yeah, I don't even know how to describe it, but it's not an enjoyable experience. Um, so for me, Williams was, um, you know, at the other, the complete other end of the spectrum. Um, so immediate experience often in his poems, um, and a very vivid and sort of simple conception of what a poem is and can do. And there's a kind of aliveness in his work, I find, um, that is really refreshing and that doesn't rely on or require uh, any literary training. And, and that's the thing about this particular approach that I use when I teach poems, just inviting um, students uh, to say what they like about a poem, anybody can do that. You know, it's easy. It doesn't require any special skill or you can just, it's its so freeing. I mean, I've seen people just come alive because the intimidation that they have felt around poetry, like, oh, I don't get it or I'm not smart enough or I don't, I haven't read enough. So I can't say anything that's valuable you can see people like the freedom that comes from dropping that and just saying, wow, I love this image or I love this line or, you know, this, the, I love the, the, the voice of the poem or whatever it might be. Um, I mean, it's easy to do. Anybody can do that. And when that is received and amplified by the group where other people are saying, yeah, I love that too. Or I, I also love this. Um, the poems come come alive, and they they reveal more of themselves under the light of that collective appreciative attention. Uh, it's really quite remarkable, and and um, the entire group uh, intelligence becomes enlivened with this sort of warmth and appreciation. It's no longer competitive, you know, like 
I want to say something smarter than everybody else. Or I want to show people what I know, you know, and that sort of thing. Or I want to present like an interpretation of the whole poem. Um, so it's quite a refreshing change from the experience that people often have in school, which so often makes people hate poetry because they feel like, well, I don't get it. It's frustrating. Um, and so they just sort of turn away from it. Um, and this is a, a way of kind of reestablishing a more fruitful and friendly relationship with poems. Yeah. In the Dharma of poetry, you do nonetheless say that poetry can be morally instructive, but you make an important distinction, a sort of show don't tell, it seems, yeah. kind of distinction. Yeah. You, you say without, to quote you, without ever making a direct assertion about how one should live. I wonder if you might say something about that. How is it in your view that poetry can have moral instruction in it? And why is it important to show rather than tell? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Um, yeah, the, the way I talk about it in the book is that poems can be exemplary. Um, they can exemplify modes of awareness, uh, modes of attention, uh, and ways of behaving in the world that we might choose to emulate, we might choose to adopt as our own. So to use my own example, to keep coming back to Williams, so I learned from him how to look at the world, how to pay attention. And that is not um, obviously a moral act, and, and yet I think it is actually um, learning to attend to the world with a kind of mindfulness and, and warm-heartedness um, does have a moral dimension. I mean, if we move through the world in that way, we're more likely to be kind, um, to be patient, and to value um, the world and not just kind of stomp through it um, as uh, as we might otherwise be, be tempted to do. Um, so ways of attending to the world, I think poems come out of um, exceptional states of of consciousness the the best poems do I think they arise when the poet is in a flow state is one way to describe it um but the poet is embodying expressing a quality of awareness that is is really powerful and when we read a poem and when we attune to that, we can absorb it and begin to see that we too can look at the world in this way. We can move through the world in this appreciative way. We can cultivate those states of awareness in ourselves. And, you know, the poem that I start with, the Issa poem, where he says, um, where he, he cautions the cricket to, uh, uh, he says, I'm going to roll over, so please move, cricket. You know, and that that I think is has a uh, ethical moral dimension of just like okay how do we how do we treat other creatures um how do we engage with the world in that way so that we don't cause harm um, <laughs> um so that too the way poets behave in their poems um can serve as a as a as an example of how we might choose to live. So it's different from poems that tell us, you know, what to do or how to think or what to believe. I don't, I don't especially like those poems. 
those kinds of poems, but they can, you know, give us examples of of how to how to move through the world and and yeah, how to how to uh, engage with it in our awareness. What is the unmistakable whiff of ego? <laughs> unmistakable, but also maybe <laughs> indescribable. Um, yeah, it's that's that's a little hard to 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 pinpoint, but I mean, I, I certainly you know the difference in my own work when I'm writing from a flow state of consciousness where the ego sort of disappears for a while and and you become a conduit for something that is larger than yourself that just comes through you. And so you're not trying to control what happens on the page quite so much. You're being led, you're being guided. It's a wonderful experience. Um, and I'm sure you're a writer. I'm sure you've had those moments where you felt like something's coming through me that I wasn't aware of before that I wasn't planning to say um that's the absence of ego ego comes into the picture when there's uh too much of an overt desire to control uh what comes and to create certain effects and you know I think I mean I can I can definitely feel that in my own work when my writing goes in that direction I can I can I can quickly see that like okay this is this is not me writing from my true self. This is the ego taking over. This is the ego speaking. Um, and maybe again, it's the desire to create a certain kind of effect to appear smart or elegant or, um, you know, noble or whatever it might be. Uh, that can be something that you can, I think, attune to and, and see when it shows up on the, on the page. But it's a little hard. It's not like there's a hard and fast rule around, you know, how to recognize that. But I think you can... You can sort of know it when you when you see it. You write here that a poet may be defined as one who stops. What do you mean by that? And what are its implications for, I suppose, the way a poet leads leads his life, and perhaps mm -hmm. also for, I think you you cast it in that light, but you also cast it in light of how one can receive a poem. Yeah, yeah, I, I. I think I make that statement uh, in the discussion of, of Frost stopping by woods on a snowy evening, um, where the poem, the entire poem, is predicated on on Frost stopping and and looking into this field and just watching the snow fall, and it, it, the horse. He says, "My little horse must think it queer to stop without a farmhouse near." You know, the horse is accustomed to you know going on this route. Uh, and uh, so, uh, you know, accustomed to just following uh, habit. Uh, and so to stop without an ostensible reason for doing so is puzzling to the horse. And, you know, in that sense, the horse might be an embodiment of our own kind of ongoing habitual momentum. And so a poet is someone who is able to step out of that, to step out of one's habitual momentum. Um, and to stop and look at the world, look at his or her or their own experience um, in a way that we can't do when we're just, we've got our heads down and we're just moving through the world in a, in a purely 
um, pragmatic kind of way. And that's another thing about you know, my own particular upbringing. My parents were extremely pragmatic people. They be, partly because they had grown up in the depression and um, they didn't have a lot of time to daydream or to focus on things that didn't have an immediate practical value. And, you know, I kind of recognized about them that about them pretty early on and decided that I wanted to live a life that would allow for this different way of engaging that wasn't so rooted in in a pragmatic way of, of being. Um, so, uh, oh, now I've lost my train of thought. What were you, what was the question again? We were talking about stopping. Stopping, stopping, yes. Um, yeah, so just the sense of of stepping outside the, the flow of experience um, and, and bringing a quality of awareness to it that depends upon one's ability to slow down and to not be just carried along by the mind's momentum, um, by the, you know, kind of proliferation of thought or uh, just doing what one has always done. Um, so, I mean, stopping may not be the most precise world word, but I thought the Frost poem gives us a great example of that, you know, that he he chooses to stop for no good reason, for no practical reason, and then has this incredibly rich experience of watching the snow fall and and his emotional response to that, um, which is really lovely, but would not happen if he had just sort of kept his head down and gone about his way. Um, so, yeah. In hearing you talk there about that frost stopping and having this profound experience for no good reason, I'm thinking of poetry that I've read and also poetry that I've heard in various contexts, good and bad, mm. uh, or should we say less, uh, less effective and more effective. Um, mm. <laughs> what about this quality of profundity in poetry? Mm. Poetry seems to have this ability to communicate profundity, yeah. sometimes in a way that there's no real way of putting it into words. The poem doesn't seem to do it, and I, as a listener, a reader, can't express it, but nonetheless, it's there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But also, I, I, can, I can remember experiences of listening to poetry that attempted to reach for profundity. It was clear yeah. that there was a reaching for that. There was an attempt, an overt attempt, I suppose, through various means yeah. to re recreate that transmission of profundity, but it failed almost be because it was so overt. How does a poet achieve profundity without obscuring that profundity in the reaching for it? Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. I mean, I think you're absolutely right that poems that reach for it, that are striving for some kind of wisdom or profundity um, are doomed to fail. Um, I I, th I think that, you know, it's again this idea that poet is a conduit, um, that, that you get out of your own way, um, you let the ego um, dissolve to the extent that it can, and just you open to something that is 
bigger than you are that you didn't know that you knew um and and you just allow something to come through you and to be guided by something that is beyond your conscious control and that that may or may not take you to something profound but it 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 creates the conditions for wisdom to enter um precisely because you have let the ego uh, and the desire to control or the desire to say something significant you've you've let that recede into the background into its kind of proper supportive role um and so there's a kind of quality of allowing that um i mean we of course we cultivate that in meditation right i mean we cultivate this this sense of allowing not trying to control our minds or our experience that sort of openness can be a way for profundity or wisdom to move through us into the poem and it's you know it's a gift when that happens uh and i think it's you know it's pretty rare uh for all but the the most um genius of, of poets but when it happens it's it's wonderful because in a poem it's embodied you know there's a kind of a richness um when wisdom shows up in a in a poem rather than in prose or in some other form uh, poems have this embodiment of of richness that can um, make the experience of whatever teaching quality that the poem might have make that much more impactful and easier to absorb yeah i'm aware that our time is coming to an end and i have still so many questions i wonder i might propose to you or petition you for a sequel at some point and in particular we could focus on your meditation practice and you've had a rich life of meditation as well as of course we focus here slightly more on poetry and and the way in which those two interact uh, cool. that's very fascinating yeah. Um, and the way in which poetry is used or uh, underused, maybe, or sometimes mm -hmm. misused. <laughs> in religious in uh, context, yeah. In, yeah, religious context, Dharma context, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, that would be very interesting. Um, yeah. I wonder if I might hit you with a couple of rapid-fire poetry-related questions that are not related to much other than I'd like to know what you think of it. Sure, yeah. How does a poet find beautiful language? find language that bucks the trend of cliche mm. without falling into I suppose exotic verbiage for its own sake yeah yeah that's that that is that is the challenge um how to make the language fresh and vivid and engaging uh without straining after poetic effects um yeah, that that's that is very challenging, and you know my poems are very conversational. Um, the language is not exalted. Um, um, yeah, it, it, that's um, it's hard. I think that for me, the first rule is the language has to feel natural. Um, and sometimes I, when I work with, I mentor some younger poets and. Um, they'll say things in their poems that you would never say, actually say to another person speaking. 
and that always feels artificial to me. And I feel like if if you're saying something in a poem that you would never actually hear another person speak, that should probably be, you know, eliminated or changed in in some way. Um, but the, I think the language is inherently musical, and so there too, you just kind of have to let the musical qualities of the language to let its sonic dimensions, its rhythmic dimensions, just sort of come forth naturally without too much manipulation. And of course, one is always paying a great deal more attention to the language when you're writing a poem than, than you are typically when you're just speaking. Um, but nevertheless, I think allowing the language, the, the music that's inherent in the language the the sound qualities the rhythmic qualities um to insofar as possible let that come through without too much manipulation and I, I think you know for me when i read the poets who i love most elizabeth bishop for example um james schuyler is another uh, the lyricism is very subtle um but it's really powerful and um you absorb that. You absorb the musical dimension of poetry from other reading other poets, and that will come into your own work uh, in a way that is transformed by your own engagement with it, but still kind of carries some of the flavor of the poets that you've been reading. Um, so, yeah, it's not easy what you're asking. <laughs> Very interesting. Thank you. Um, Two more rapid fire questions, not to do with anything other than my interest in hearing you. Yeah. Reading poetry aloud, how should we approach that? There can be a tendency to somehow read it in a very unnatural rhythm, emphasizing certain words, uh, you know, a sort of poetic, uh, put on poetic yeah. you know, emphasis. But on the other hand, can one be too conversational and throwaway? I sometimes hear people reading poetry, trying to avoid that kind of very stilted, overly, quote unquote, poetic approach, and then almost throw the poem away with the casualness of it. Right. How can we read a poem so that it, the poem can come through with our reading as a vehicle for it rather than as a sort of impediment for it? Yeah. Well, yeah, there too, I think it's a, a question of finding the the sweet spot, the, the middle way between a kind of, a self-consciously performative way of, of reading the poems in this artificial voice, which is, I, I think it's deadly. You know, I, I just, I kind of, I, I so stop engaging when I hear that uh, voice. Um, and, and then the other extreme is, as you say, you know, so casual that the, it feels like it's just being thrown away and you can't tell like, is the poet still giving the introduction to the poem or is this now the poem? You know, I've had that experience where you think, wait, oh, oh I guess the poem started. I didn't realize it. Um, uh, so yeah, finding a sweet spot in there and just letting the poem itself guide you. I mean, I think if you're, when you're reading the poem, if you're really attuned to the language, if you're really sensitive to the language and to the rhythms of the poem, it will come through if you just allow it, you know, with again, not trying to control it too much, but but also giving it some energy, giving it some aliveness, your own aliveness, bringing that into the reading of the poem is always helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Last rapid fire question. Thank you very much. Uh, 
what role, if any, do you see for memorization mm. uh, in a poet's formation, in a poet's uh, ongoing education and nourishment? Yeah, that's 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 a great question. I, you know, I myself um, have not practiced a lot of memorization. I mean, there are certain poems that I have memorized, and um, Frost is a great example. I was reading a biography of Frost recently. And this writer, I can't remember his name, said that um, it, it's it's difficult to not not to memorize Frost poems. <laughs> you know, if you read them enough, they just they're so memorable. They just kind of stick, and you find like, oh my god, I know that poem by heart. I wasn't even trying. Um, so I'm probably not the best person to speak to this because I haven't done a lot of memorization, but I know you know many poets find that really really helpful. Um, to commit poems to, to memory. But since I don't do that, it's hard for me to speak to the benefits of that. What I will say is, and this is sort of related, I, I think rereading poems is profoundly important. So the poems that I love most, I have read, you know, hundreds of times. Um, and so they, I have absorbed them, even if I can't recite them. I have had a deep, profound experience with the poem many, 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 many times. So I have seen different things in it. Um, I've had a different experience of the poem. But more than that, I have absorbed it. So it's it's in me. It's, it's sort of in my nervous system. And it, it's, it's part of my uh, poetic... Uh, uh, metabolism, I guess, would be one way of saying it. It's uh, it's it's deeply within, and I, I think that's really important to reread poems, um, especially poems that one finds you know particularly meaningful or powerful. To not just sort of read them a few times and feel like, oh well, I, now I know that poem, but to keep coming back um, and re-engaging. I think that's that's really important. Thank you. This has been so fascinating and. I must petition you, I think, for a sequel around the theme of poetry as a spiritual practice. It's a line you phrase you use in the book quite often, and uh, you have a lot to say about the intersection of those of those two streams: meditation yeah, would, and poetry. Yeah, I would love that. Yeah, and it's been it's been such a pleasure to talk with you. Yeah, absolutely. John Brain, thank you very much. Thanks so much, Steve. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.